And this is the Green Majority. If you have come to sneak diss on a tardigrade, you have come to the right place. This is not a safe space for microbes or small organisms of several cells or fewer. Did they make you guys experiment on those in like first year biology? Because they did that with us and I felt so bad. I remember getting a little Petri dish of silicone and and a, and a water bear. And they're like, these things can survive anything. And then we just like tortured them for like an hour. No, we, 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 we hacked up the formaldehyded bodies of fetal pigs. I mean, you didn't have to torture the thing alive, like the tardigrade. No. no, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an evil person. This isn't how we find out that like Dave is actually a sociopath and he has a pattern of like torturing small animals and starting small fires in your family backyard for decades. That's an action that scientists do, Lauren, not I. <laughs> He's not a scientist. But this is and the this is the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city. And the sound of your city just got a little bit more jubilant. With the election of Ms. Olivia Chow, who is clearly an introverted radical and has been agitating since at least 1990 in this city and has some skip to her step, which our mayors of late have not had, which is nice to see, someone who can move in space like a relatable human being. Olivia Chow was part of a group of people who overturned a ban on raves that Mel Lastman put in place. You see, there you go. In 2000. It yeah. is. It's like, she's like, she's down to party. We're going to have an interview with uh, Mr. Tim Nash, the sustainable economist. Yeah. We actually had an email from a listener who wanted to ask him a question or want us to ask him a question. Is that why you've done the interview? We, we actually had planned the interview beforehand and it just happened to really work out. But so, also, this is how responsive we are to your emails, listeners. Send yeah. us emails with questions and we will endeavor to answer them. Send yeah. me emails telling me how cute and pretty I sound. I will also respond to that. <laughs> Except that it'll come to me and I'll just presume it's about me. That's the key here. So Tim Nash, we talk about uh, the Freakonomics episode about ESG which and what it gets wrong. The general state of mild optimism that he is feeling uh, due to a number of experiences. I feel like he's been on that for a couple of decades. That seems to be his glide. Yeah, but I think it's a little more specific now. In a way that uh, is, you know, was not maybe the case a year ago. And we're going to get to that interview. We're going to do a little bit of climate news. But Stefan had, well, I have no idea what Stefan's about to talk about, but I, I can't say that I'm excited for it. I mean, I, I'm not excited for it either. Yeah. If yeah. Not so sure Tim Nash is going to feel as optimistic after listening to this episode. By the time he gets to his ep part of the episode? Yeah, it's true. I'm sorry, Tim, in advance. Um, yeah, so this is a story that has been slowly growing over the past few months on sort of my Twitter feeds and in places that I follow. And it's something, I think we mentioned this off the top of the show maybe a month or two ago. And I just wanted to come back to it because, A, there's a new interesting wrinkle that I think is just something that I haven't really seen in mainstream news. So I wanted to sort of mention it because I find it interesting. But also, B, it's just so terrifying that I don't want to be a climate show that doesn't mention the thing that, like, le that ends up leading to the collapse of the, you know, the ocean currents that keep the UK alive you know? Yeah, I'm sure. All those UK refugees are going to be coming over to Newfoundland and you're going to be asking yourself, why didn't I comment? I mean, I'm just saying that I think one of our goals is to keep our audience abreast 
of some of the things that they should know about that may not make mainstream media. And I think that this one undeniably is high on that list. But now that I've not told you what it is for so long, it is, of course, for those who pay attention to some of these sorts of things, the fact that the global average sea and air temperatures are absolutely off the charts this year. And in a way that is terrifying, and it would be terrifying if this was happening in the middle of El Nino, which we are coming into, which is a normal heating pattern that exists in in the world. But this is happening before El Nino has fully arrived. And so it's like doubly bad news. And you can see this both in the gra- both in these, there's two graphs that sort of keep showing up and you keep seeing them as they get worse every time someone posts it every like week or two as they're updated. And one of them is showing the the heat of the ocean. And that is like kind of off whack of how it should be. Normally it's going down at this point in time. It's still going up. It's a sort of uniquely out of proportion of where it should be and how normal patterns are going. And then the second one is like Antarctic sea ice, which is just cratering in a way that is we've never seen before at this time of year. And so both of these are examples of like truly, truly different experiences of heat levels in the ocean. And it is like, yeah, you know, it's. It's not like the next hot thing. It is like a uniquely different look in terms of heat. And so we can expect some really, really terrifying things to come out of it. And I know a couple of stories that Dave will cover later mention heat waves and things like that. But this is something that just like, go look at this because you should know what's happening and be prepared for it. There's a great article in The Conversation uh, about this and about a potential reason why, which I also want to get to in a second. But... What exactly are you saying, though? You're saying that it's not just hotter than last year. It's the graph is going in a different direction from last year. Well, yes. And and it's going hotter by so much more. Like you can sort of a lot of these graphs have basically like, you know, um, normal trends that they follow. But also you can see each year getting hotter and hotter as they're numbered and 2013 both continues to go up when there's normally a trend back down and also is just so much hotter than it ever has been period 2013 20 20, sorry 2023 sorry this year you know how emergency rooms go like a little bit haywire during a heat wave because everybody's hot and everybody's agitated and it makes everybody violent that's what's happening with the yacht tipping orcas in the Mediterranean. That is what this is. We've they're they're hot, they're sticky, they're angsty, and they know where to channel their angst is towards these yachts. So I don't actually think it's because that first orca was hit by that yacht and she's holding a grudge and they're mobilizing that way. I think they're just PO'd. Yeah. Right? I, exactly. I'm a marine biologist, actually. Yeah. I know these things. Uh, the, this is the thing that I think is most interesting, but also terrifying which is that two or three years ago, in 2020, I believe, there was a successful ban on sulfur dioxide emissions amongst boating, amongst the shipping industry. And sulfur dioxide has a couple years that it exists in the atmosphere before it dissipates its warming, or sorry, its cooling efforts. And sulfur dioxide is one of the examples of, of 
aerosols that actually provide a cooling effect rather than a warming effect on the earth it's why it's in the geoengineering episode that we did it's the idea that's the idea some people are positioning is to spray this up into the atmosphere and so it's very possible and a lot of and it's being studied right now if it is the case that the emissions that are coming sorry that that the emission reduction of sulfur dioxides in in boating have basically allowed this jump to happen like it takes about three years so now the cooling impacts of all the sulfur dioxide that was being released by all the shipping is no longer being seen in our general systems and so that explains the rapid jump we've seen this year along with el nino is that we no longer have as much sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere because of these successful pollution reducing goals I don't have any comments, guys. Yeah. If 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 this was a video, if there was a video element to it, <laughs> you'd just see me making stank face at the screen and like staring into the middle distance. Those seals that I saw David Attenborough talking about recently are are going to perish. The other potential option that the conversation article re- references is that there's a lack of Saharan dust reflecting uh, things back to. So those so, are so, so her- you're saying. The desert, the Sahara Desert, kicks up is has dust gets kicked up, and that reflects the sun back, and keeps the heat cool sometimes. That's one of and the that's not occurring right now. That's one of the theories, along mm. with the sulfur uh, emissions. Yeah. Wow. Stop looking at me, you. Stop looking at me, you. Smoking that black. So Mitchell Beer reports for the Energy Mix that the CEO of OceanGate, Stockton Rush, who recently died with four of his passengers when his uncertified submersible imploded, was using the Titanic trips to prove his technology in the eyes of the oil and gas industry. Rush himself was an oil money heir and uh, wanted to build a SpaceX for the ocean. He believed that new technologies did not need to be approved by anyone outside the company before bringing them to market. Um, now, so his company was apparently profitable. They predicted in 2017 that they would be profitable from the Titanic trips, but ultimately they were looking to become, uh, oil players. Um, and beer draws parallels to the oil industry, pointing to Exxon's deep water drilling in Guyana, which would pin any spill on the country rather than the company. Uh, the huge pile of toxic waste larger than Vancouver in Northern Alberta, which might end up being dumped into a river, Uh, and the proposed liquid natural gas plant in Texas, less than six miles from a SpaceX facility that has already caused several explosions. And Beer writes, quote, the oil and gas industry faces several standards and faces safety standards and certifications as tough as OceanGate ever imagined, but its day-to-day practices have still led to a continuing avalanche of health, safety, and environmental violations. At least one former safety consultant has blown the whistle on industry practices, and the sector's performance will go from bad to worse as some of the world's biggest polluters move to decarbonize their portfolios by selling off their oldest, most marginal operations to smaller companies with even less ability or inclination to operate them safely. So he's just making he's just making a link here between like the sort of slapdash, haphazard way that oil companies can get away with stuff in the same way that Ocean Gate did. 
Um, and I guess playing on just the fact that they're, they're sort of uh, linked in terms of profits, at least in the imagination of the owner. Yeah, well, no, that, that Ocean Gate story or the pieces about it really also informed me of an entire industry which I didn't know about. Because, like, one of the things about this Ocean Gate, um, the submersible that existed used carbon fiber, which meant that no matter what, they could only go down once. And that was to make it cheaper. And apparently one of the reasons why they did that was because they wanted to sell to this type of person whose entire job is to take huge risks to find oil in weird places. And like there's a job of these people who are sort of like just go out into like these dangerous places to try to find oil and they make millions of dollars if they succeed. But they're like kind of this dangerous and bad job that exists out there and they're hoping to like make a bunch of these cheaply enough to sell to those people who could then go down and try to find oil in them and fuel itself was going to cost a million dollars just to get down that far so like these are not was going cheap. to or did well did i guess yeah we made it to the bottom hey wait so question sorry because this was a company that had operated for like i was under the impression that it had operated for the better part of like a decade Mm-hmm. They used single-use submersibles every single time? I think this was a new product they were trying to create. Like, I don't, I think that, and I think it did work a few times, but yes, the switch to carbon fiber from, which everyone said was a bad idea, um, but that they did, was going to mean, ensure that they could only ever use it once instead of like titanium each, or each, each vessel. Each mean. vessel, yeah. yeah. But this wasn't, this wasn't the very first time they tried such a vessel. No, Correct. Yeah, I mean, a lot of hubris going on here. A lot of hubris. And obviously, okay, to clarify, for listeners that might be offended that we're taking a somewhat scornful tone here, nobody thinks anybody deserved to die, especially not that poor 17-year-old boy who just went down with his dad because it was Father's Day. A farmland and a river in the Niger Delta have been contaminated by a new oil spill from Shell. This spill is considered major, although according to Al Jazeera, spills are always happening in that area because of vandalism and poor pipeline maintenance. There has been long-standing and intense opposition to the industry from locals. An ocean heat wave off of the UK and Ireland is smashing temperature records by up to 5 degrees Celsius. Puerto Rico has been going through extreme heat uh, of 125 degrees Fahrenheit on the heat index. Texas has also recorded a record heat index of 125 degrees Fahrenheit, and various cities in Texas have recorded heat records. Uh, The Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Center has declared that 2023 is already the worst year for wildfires in Canadian history. We've already burned the most land. Uh, The fires themselves have so far are fewer, but are much larger than in 1989, which was the previous worst year. 75 of the world's biggest oil and gas companies have made net zero pledges that are essentially meaningless. Others are pretending to go net zero simply by selling off their most polluting projects rather than shutting them down. And finally, it was recently found that toxic gases like benzene are still leaking from abandoned oil wells in Pennsylvania. So quite conceivably, many other abandoned oil wells are are leaking toxic gases. In the interview that we we're about to do with Tim Nash, we talk a little bit about how a couple of years ago when the price of oil was so low, 
these the oil companies were coming and being like, we can't afford to go green, give us money. And then the Trump government gave them billions of dollars to basically publicize the cause, or publicize, that's the wrong word. Uh, na- 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 what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, national Absorb? Yeah. I mean... Wow. <laughs> I, it's fine. I can make this work. Um, the Trudeau government gave, you know, billions of dollars to the oil companies so that they wouldn't have to pay to clean up their own wells, which is still happening way slower than we want. And yet, here we are with their now making billions of dollars, and instead of doing any of the things they said they would do if they had the money, aka move towards greener initiatives, they have gone exactly the opposite direction and have these pledges that make no sense. And like, at some point, we have to understand that the oil companies are not going to stop this ongoing heat and destruction. And I don't know when that is, because this year's COP is run by an oil executive. So maybe next year. I think the story in that in that section that sticks out to me um, is is the one that's that's focused on the on the forest fire season. Um, And I know we've talked about it on the show or maybe we haven't. The show sometimes blurs together with work calls. Honestly, I'm not going to lie. But uh, but it's I know it's it's what everybody's been talking about lately, especially those of us in Ontario in major cities who maybe aren't used to experiencing forest fire smoke um, as much as we have this past year, myself being based out of Ottawa, the guys being based out of Toronto. It's something that it's it's a new phenomena for us, um, generally speaking. Um, so I think it's something that's definitely that we are all thinking about, especially as folks who work in climate. And and I know by the time this airs, there will already have been a big 350 day of action that happened this week that was distributed, um, encouraging people to to go to their MP offices and and talk about the wildfire season with their MPs and then also drum up a bit of sort of conversation in the media about it. But I think um, and, and what I hope comes out of this, I hope there are a lot of things that come out of it, but, but I think it would be really great if this is a moment that the climate community can sort of really seize on, not that we're looking to capitalize off of the pain of people or, or, or leverage it in, in a way that is harmful, but just making sure that when we're talking about this wicked bananas wildfire season that's bringing so much destruction and pain to so many people it's that we continuously bring it back to the to the culprits here and the culprits are those oil and gas companies who are pledging to be net zero who are rolling out pathways alliance initiatives to try to greenwash greenwash their operations and keep things going for as long as they possibly can um and make it really clear that like these wildfires we're experiencing like this is climate change in action and they're not going anywhere and it's not going to get better anytime soon and if we want to try to save each other and save ourselves, it's going to look like a lot of money going towards climate action, both mitigation and adaptation, and that loss and damage piece that normally we talk about loss and damage a lot around around COP and around our international actions, but it's a conversation we need to start having here domestically as well and what it looks like to compensate and support those communities, um, especially remote ones in northern spaces that are that are being um, really acutely affected by these forest fires and, and and how we're supporting them in their as they as they mitigate against climate change and how they adapt to it and then and then also how they how they deal with the with the losses that they face in the wake of it. Anyway, um, it, this is going to be a topic we continuously come back to over the summer, um, as I think we should, because I think we need to be talking about it as much as possible. And we will go to a short music break and return with Stefan speaking with Mr. Tim 
Nash on the Green Majority. I'm here with longest friend of the show. Most times on the show, I believe, certainly, by far, Tim Nash, the sustainable economist and the founder and CEO of Good Investing. Sure. President, I think is what it says on my incorporation documents. All right. President. It's also more, more fun to say. The president of Good Investing. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Love this show. And it's so much fun for me to be on it. Amazing. And so when we have you on, one of our first questions is always just an open-ended one to get a sense of how you're feeling. You know, you're tapped into a, a slightly different world than than we are, or I am at least personally most often on the show. And so, yeah, how are how are you feeling? What's the state of, of the world as, as seen by Tim Nash? <laughs> so state of the market right now, I mean, my goodness, it's been a very, very interesting time. Over the last little while, but honestly, I'm feeling optimistic for the first time in a while. I'm feeling some really, really good energy. It was nice locally. You know, this week we saw Olivia Chow get elected. Toronto didn't screw it up. I was worried there for a few moments watching the results came in, but we actually, Toronto came through. Voter turnout way higher than I expected. And, you know, and Olivia Chow came in with the win. So, you know, certainly feeling the the nice energy of a win. I think it's been a while since I've had sort of a political win. So that certainly feels good. And I'm coming off a really busy time over the last month or so. There's been a bit of a conference circuit in the sustainable finance world. So I've been to a whole bunch of different conferences and events talking about various places of within the, the sustainable finance ecosystem. And I got to say, I'm feeling really inspired. A, it's just nice to be in person with people again. I think I've really been missing that. But also it's given me the opportunity to take stock of how far we've come in the last few years. That, you know, when the pandemic, when the pandemic started, sustainable finance ecosystem was still fairly small, still somewhat niche. And my goodness, it really has grown and evolved and developed both on the supply side. And on the demand side, there's a lot more nuanced conversations taking place, which is just incredible. So I've been really inspired by seeing the number of, of products that are available now. I mean, it's beyond my wildest dreams. And then also the interest from investors, large and small, who now, you know, the big challenge is figuring out, okay, what's the best option for me, right? Rather than should I or shouldn't I, it's now these more, this more nuanced what are the best approaches? So it's been a really, really cool time. I will say there's a bit of a cloud hanging over the industry right now. Last year, 2022, really did see this big pushback against sustainable investing. We kind of got branded with this acronym ESG and that, you know, everyone's got their own opinions about ESG investing now. And that we started to see a lot of criticisms 
for the first time, both from the left and from the right, which was really interesting. So, you know, I do think there is this this overhang or this this cloud of skepticism and uncertainty. And to some degree, I think people are kind of trying to muddy the waters for us. At the same time, the amount of momentum, the amount of interest, the whole ecosystem is just popping right now. It's really exciting to see. That's amazing. We'll get to ESG a little bit more in a second. And one of the things I appreciate about our conversations around ESG, which for those who don't know, is environment, social, and governance, right? That's the acronym? That's right. That This is environmental, social, and governance. Typically, it's done as an analysis method. So this is us looking at companies and not only at their financial, you know, doing that financial analysis, but also looking at environmental, social, and governance indicators when we're assessing company. That said, it's kind of become a bit of a synonym for sustainability or sustainable investing. You know, people are starting to use it as a bit of a noun, which for me is really confusing because to me, it's always been a descriptor. It's sort of a a style of investing or an approach that we might use rather than a thing in and of itself. Yeah, and I think that that caveat and also the idea that you've brought forward previously, which is that like, it shouldn't be understood as this like whole savior experience. And it and it's that's not its intention is something so important to keep in mind. But we'll get to that in a second. But first, I want to come back for a second to your optimism, because <laughs> I, I will say that for something that I've consistently mentioned a little bit on the show and something that I come back to is how itching it feels like there's a number of people to just do the work are like we spend so much time in this sector and environmental sides generally trying to just create the ability to have conversations and to move forward and to get good work done that when something unlocking does occur, like sort of you've seen in the last little bit within sustainable investing, or, you know, when the right policy or people get in place in in power, like we can, might, we were hopefully going to see with this, with this Toronto election, that suddenly the there's a whole upswing of people who are like, oh, I can actually do something and be part of a solution and build and and create rather than just sort of try to block and fight. And that to me is such a a positive force, you know, to be able to actually bring people along to be, give them something that they can do and build is is so so helpful. And, and you need to harness that. That's to me one of the biggest things about this moment right now is like, I'm sure both in, in sustainable finance, but also within here in the city of Toronto, it's like, we have to find ways to unlock the people who want to go and build and do better as quickly as possible so that you can bring that momentum and bring everyone up forward. Because it is both lovely to be a part of, but also infectious if you get it, you hit the right moment. Absolutely. And I think, you know, and I'm, I'm a realist, I listen to the show pretty much every week. So, you know, you keep me grounded in the realities of kind of how bad the situation is. And I get it. I don't want it to come across as me being naive that I'm optimistic. I really do understand the challenges that we're facing right now. But I do believe that that the best antidote to despair is to roll up your sleeves and get to work. And for me, it's been a really good reminder over the last month that I'm not alone in this work. It can sometimes feel like really lonely work and there is a community and it's Toronto, you know, it was so nice for us to come together as a community to have this electoral outcome. And I think that that for me, seeing the this uh, sustainable finance ecosystem and these communities really growing and developing, that is what gives me hope. And I am seeing a lot more people looking for active solutions, 
when it comes to tangible things that they can do about it. And obviously for me, one of these approaches is sustainable investing, that this is a very something within your realm of control that is absolutely an important lever. I would put it on par with voting and, you know, how you consume and how you earn your money, what kind of company you're working for. You know, these are all really important ways that we participate in society. And I want people to think of their investments as yet another lever. It's not a panacea. It's not a silver bullet. This is, you know, one tactic of many different tactics. But I happen to think it's a very important lever for us to be using. And that's why, you know, it is frustrating for me that there is sort of this skepticism right now that I think there are a lot of people pushing back against it. And to a certain degree, I welcome it like, hey, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's, you know, I, I want people to explore it deeper. But I will say that, you know, whereas a few years ago, I would talk to people and, you know, meet them at a party or at a wedding. And what do you do? And I talk about sustainable finance. And whereas before they didn't really know what I was talking about. Now it's really often that I bring these issues up and they actually have a very negative impression or bias against sustainable investing, even though it's clear they're not like experts or haven't gone too deep into it. But there is a perception among a pretty large group of the population that, you know, it is sort of BS or it's a scam or, you know, pick pick your derogatory term. Yeah. And so on that topic, there was a listener who reached out to us and they had listened to a Freakonomics episode about ESG and sort of talking about how it might actually make climate change worse is sort of the, I think that that's the name of the show itself or the episode itself or something similar to that. And, and they were, they wanted your opinion and it was last week and it was like, wow, this is remarkably serendipitous because I have a meeting <laughs> we're interviewing Tim next week. I will bring this to him. And so I'm wondering if you can sort of like go through the episode for our listeners who haven't heard this, because I, I imagine most have not. And then right. we can chat about it as we as we go through. Totally. So I I heard this episode. A couple of people sent it to me, but Freakonomics is a podcast that I do subscribe to and listen to. Very, very popular. And yeah, they kind of, you know, started to take, I would say, some shots at ESG investing with this episode. And I do think it falls into a broader narrative that's taking place. So you know, I was already starting to think of my retort to this because I did find some pretty fundamental errors that I think they're making. And so, you know, to, to have this opportunity with you is just awesome. So really, let me just kind of go through the episode. Please, like, interrupt me at any time. You know, if you want me to clarify something or, you know, at any point, just jump in. But really happy to kind of take people through the episode, sort of my reaction to it. The first thing is that they really do introduce the whole episode with this concept of ESG investing, which again means environmental, social, and governance. Now, the way that I kind of frame the language around it is that really I much prefer the terms responsible investing or sustainable investing as the header, because under that header, there are a whole bunch of different approaches that we can use. And the problem is that the show really started to conflate these different approaches. They weren't clear in terms of the language they were using. So they introduced the whole thing as ESG investing, when really that is, again, you know, a, a tactic that is ESG is an analysis process. And then right away, one of their first interviews is with Norway's Sovereign Wealth Fund. So I don't know how much you know about Norway, but, you know, they've kind of, you know, they've been drilling for oil for a while. But, you know, instead of it going to publicly traded companies, it's a nationalized 
companies. So they've created this massive sovereign wealth fund. And they primarily use this strategy that we call negative screening or divestment, right? So they kind of have a blacklist. And literally, I think that's what they call it, is a blacklist of companies. These are human rights abusers. These are things like tobacco or gambling, you know, these quote unquote sin sectors. And they do exclude oil and gas producers, very much on the sort of primary extraction is the thing they've said. And that really, you know, that is their bread and butter. I've used their sort of blacklist as a list of some of the most evil companies when I'm trying to find that. It's a great research tool. But, you know, ESG is very, very different from negative screening. These are two different approaches. So right off the bat, I was kind of like shaking my fist at the the radio, right? Because it's like you're talking about ESG, but then the example that you're using is negative screening or divestment. So that's kind of like the first sort of cardinal sin that I think the episode made is just, you know, conflating these different approaches that we use. From there, the second cardinal sin they committed is that this is such a pet peeve of mine that with ESG, it's environmental, social, and governance issues. And so environmentally, and we've got probably a thousand indicators across all three right now. So, you know, a lot of them are on the environmental side, all the companies, operations, pollutions, energy in, energy out, all these wonderful things. Social is looking a lot at their employees and also their their sort of impact on society and, you know, community outreach, stuff like that. But it's mostly about their employees and how well they treat their employees. And then governance is about how the company operates. And so this is like a really wide ranging perspective when we talk about ESG analysis. We're looking at a bunch of things, but... They made the cardinal sin of ignoring the S and the G, the social and the governance, only focusing on the environment. And they reference a paper. They had a professor from Yale, Professor Shu, that really did this paper, which is an interesting paper, but only looked at one environmental indicator, which is carbon intensity. This idea of carbon intensity, carbon efficiency. It's the tons of CO2 per million dollars of revenue. Right. So this is a metric that we use. How many tons of CO2 does the company emit to create a million dollars in revenue? So this is like one indicator. It's not even like the one that I would really focus on from an environmental standpoint, let alone, you know, social or or governance factors, which I think are often way more important than environment. But it takes this whole ESG and, and really simplifies it down to not only just the environment, but only one metric within the environment. Oh, I'm so frustrated. Right? right. Yeah. And, and that intensity factor is something that environmentalists have had problems with forever, right? Because when you talk about it in terms of, say, the oil sands keep often having this intensity targets, but that, of course, doesn't actually mean that you're necessarily even decreasing emissions, right? Like, that's very right. easily, you could imagine I'm just getting more and more efficient and making money off the emissions I'm making, but your company could still be straight up increasing emissions for that entire time. As long as they're coming more, as long as they're making more money in comparison to how emissions are having, so it, it doesn't even right. necessarily indicate environmental benefit. No, and it also ignores scope three emissions, which there's sure. like a huge battle over scope three. But of course, for this research report, because that battle hasn't been finalized, they don't include scope three emissions. So there's like you know, there's a lot of baggage that comes with this one indicator that they chose. Right. And and the, the issue is that really the way this indicator is, is presented, and not only this indicator, but this approach, is is the author talks about 
that most sustainable investing today sort of avoids brown companies and invests in green companies. They go so far as calling it, and I quote, the dominant sustainable investment strategy of sort of avoiding the brown stuff and putting more into the green stuff. That's not the dominant strategy at all. That's not how most sustainable investors, what they're doing at all. When I look at the market, and again, these are mostly large investors, you know, institutional investors, ESG integration is the most popular. So this is looking at the broad environmental social governance indicators and integrating that into the financial decision-making. So you're usually not completely avoiding companies going all in or all out. You're mostly like tweaking or we call it tilting, right? The investments towards companies that have a better ESG score. You know, it's, it's much more nuanced than this sort of all or nothing. And then the second most popular strategy is shareholder engagement, which I'll speak to a little bit more in, in a minute because they bring it up as this sort of relevatory thing that we should be doing instead when really it's like, no, this is the second most popular strategy is to own shares of the company and then push that company in the right direction. So divestment is actually, you know, pretty far down the list, exclusions, divestment is actually number three. And even then, most of the time, it's not fossil fuels. It's not getting rid of brown companies. You know, it's getting rid of the human rights abusers and the tobaccos and the gamblings and, you know, the weapons manufacturers. Like those are way more likely to be, you know, the priority rather than fossil fuels. So again, it just, it, it broadly simplifies. It assumes that, you know, that this is the one indicator to rule them all, that this is how most sustainable investors. And, and that's just a really bad you know, take that, you know, really this to me is the, the cardinal sin is that it really assumes that all sustainable investors have the same motivation. In the case of this paper or, you know, the way the podcast presents it, it's to make the world greener, that we're trying to green the world. But that's not true at all. Sustainable investors, you know, for the most part, like, you know, and this isn't necessarily me or my clients, but you know, the big pension funds and the large groups that are doing this are really trying to reduce their exposure to risk. That that's what ESG is really all about. It's about earning the same market rates of return while lowering your exposure to things like carbon risk, things like reputation risk of scandals, you know, things like governance risks where, you know, CEOs make bad decisions because they have all the power, right? And, the, and then for me, the people I deal with are more, I would consider them more like ethical investors, that they're not necessarily trying to make the world greener. I mean, some of them, that's the motivation. But a lot of them, they're trying to earn the same returns in a way that just aligns more closely with their values. Like it really is about a values alignment thing. It's not necessarily that, you know, it's like I'm pushing the whole world that this is the, the silver bullet. It really is that, you know, I'm going to feel better about my investments if they are aligned with with your values. And, and so this, everyone has a really unique motivation when it comes to sustainable investing. So it just drives me nuts, this assumption that there is one singular motivation of sustainable investors. And that one singular thing is simply making the world greener. Like that's just not my experience at all. Yeah. And it is my understanding that, you know, these, these ESG things, or the ESG expectations or reporting, you know, I know there's a conversation at one point about the TSX requiring ESG reporting as a way to, as a way to be on the listed. I don't know if that's yeah. happened or not. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. We're getting, um, we're getting some more standardization, mm -hmm. but sadly, Toronto Stock Exchange itself hasn't yet done any disclosure requirements. I mean, I guess it also has the most number of mining institutions in the world. So I'm sure they would not love that. But, but it is interesting that 
any company can have these reports, right? Like, and you can imagine an arms manufacturer could come out and be like, here are our ESG reports. And that's right. They can be a part of that ESG reporting as yes. much as anyone else. It doesn't, it doesn't yes. actually in any way imply that they're a quote unquote good company. It's right. just further reporting and further information for the investor to know to make that's these right. decisions. That's right. And it's about the risk that ESG scores really don't look at what product is being sold. Right. So you can get military companies with a good ESG score because they are doing well in terms of their operations and their procedures. Right. They do have targets for these things from moving in the right direction, but it, it, it ignores what's being sold. This is why ESG versus divestment are such different things that if you want to avoid companies, right, because they're brown or because they're oil and gas or because they don't align with your values. Great. That needs to be an exclusion. ESG is about looking at all the, the mining companies or looking at all of the military companies and which ones are actually leaders when it comes to the sustainability of their operations, which, hey, I get it. That's not for everyone. But again, this is about the different motivations that some investors are going to be fine owning those sectors, but want to own the best of the best and reduce their risk. Other investors are going to be like, hell no, not one penny into those sectors. Right. And again, it's just this idea that that, you know, when I think of the sustainable investment spectrum and there are a few ways I kind of talk about it, one of them is sort of impact first people. Right. That are really trying to have an impact first, change the world. And then, you know, they can earn a financial return that's sort of icing on the cake versus the finance first people where it's really about financial returns first and any change or impact they have is sort of icing on the cake. Right. Like there's there's a spectrum there. If you pick one point along that spectrum, you're always going to be way too sustainable for some people and not sustainable enough for others. So this is the problem with any time people kind of assume one strategy, one indicator, one motivation, kind of one place on that spectrum, you're going to get attacked from both sides, understandably so. Because for some people, they're saying, hey, that's greenwashing. That doesn't go nearly far enough. You know, I want real impact, right? And other people are saying, hey, you know, I really care about financial returns. Really, this is, you know, we need that, that financial primacy. You know, why is that the priority? You'll never get agreement. This is why it is such a unique kind of individual thing. The work that I do with clients really kind of, you know, figuring out where their values are, what their motivations are, and then, you know, designing a portfolio that's a good fit for that. Yeah, I, I think it's really quite funny and I'm sure very frustrating to be in this ESG sector from a standpoint of you have like Governor Abbott in Texas basically yeah. saying that ESG is is woke and therefore he will ban woke investing in Texas, which makes no sense as a sentence, but whatever. But then some people, of course, sort of will use this to sort of then sell ESG products as if he's in any way not out to lunch from a standpoint of like, no, look, if the guy from Texas hates it, then clearly it's got to be good, right? Whereas yeah. That's also not necessarily the case. You easily could end up with, you know, Lockheed Martin nailing the ESG score. And here you are owning an arms manufacturer because you only care about quote unquote ESG, which again is not actually the tool that you're hearing, right? Like the, the tool That's that right. you think And that it you is. expect. Yeah, right. That an investor expects that when you think about sustainable investing, everyone's going to have their own expectations of what that means. For me, it's usually a combination of, you know, divestment, negative screening, ESG integration, getting rid of the worst of the worst, sector by sector, shareholder engagement, which is pushing companies in the right direction, 
And then from there also, that's like the doing less evil side, then also the doing more good side where, hey, let's invest part of our money in the green stuff, in companies that are leaders, you know, really designing renewable energy, clean technology, water infrastructure, these sort of green themes. There's also this whole world of impact investing, which is that impact first side of the equation, things like community bonds. So like the Center for Social Innovation, you know, how the heck does a nonprofit own two buildings in downtown Toronto? You know, community bonds was the answer. So, you know, there is just such this wide spectrum. And I think it's just so important that people understand the breadth of choices that are available. And to really avoid kind of like pigeonholing the industry or, you know, with any one approach or tactic that I just find that is often sort of like the straw man argument for against sustainable investing is there's this one part of it that I don't agree with. And so the whole thing gets thrown out because of that. When to me, it just, it is a more nuanced thing. There are a bunch of different approaches, you know? And, and for me, it's about people investing intentionally and actually making that intentional decision about how they want to allocate their money. Yeah. I can finish off like my last criticism yeah, of do the that. episode is really that, you know, when it comes to this paper, so what they do is they use this carbon intensity metric. They kind of talk about, they divide it up and, and look at the, the brown companies versus the green companies based just on carbon emissions. From there, they realize that, okay, the, they, they say that the most dominant sustainable investing strategy is to avoid the brown companies and invest in the green ones. It's not totally the case, but let's go forward with that. Then the knock-on effect is that that means less money is flowing to the brown companies, more money is flowing to the green companies, which, hey, for me, I'm like, hey, that doesn't sound too bad. Except their argument is that, you know, that really we're depriving brown companies of the money that they could be using to go green. That their argument is that 100% reduction in emissions by a green firm. So if they're already green, they get their emissions like down to zero, has less real environmental impact than a 1% reduction in emissions of a similarly sized brown firm. So according to them, we should be like giving the oil companies more money because they're the ones that if they reduce their emissions, it's going to have a bigger impact. And this is just the most absurd argument because these brown companies are not going green. Like oil and gas companies, like we've seen like when the, when the oil price was really low and they were like bleeding cash, they're like, oh no, we can't afford you know, to invest in green technology. Now, I mean, they're gushing cash. They've been doing really well. Profits have been at a record high over the last year, you know, 18 months. They're spending all their money on buybacks and dividends. So dividends is, you know, paying the money to their investors. Buybacks is that they're buying back their own shares, which is a funny mechanism. They're not even pretending anymore that they're going green at all. I mean, we can look at Shell, like they just came up this announcement, the CEO is like, nah, we're just not investing in the green. They're not pretending anymore. And so this notion that, well, you know, we should be actually giving them more capital because they're the ones who can, you know, have the biggest opportunity to reduce their emissions. I don't, they're not going to invest in these technologies without government support, right? From there, they, the podcast goes on to highlight carbon capture and sequestration like CCUS. I'm sure I know I've heard the conversations on the show. We know that this is very likely a delay tactic to prop up the oil industry for longer, 
right? So that's presented as like a bit of a solution, like why people should be investing more money in oil. Like it's just kind of an absurd argument, right? And then and then they really put a highlight on shareholder engagement, which is owning shares of the company and pushing them in a more sustainable direction. There's the really cool story of engine number one. If you remember last year, they had a, a they had a big victory at the Exxon Mobil annual meeting where they got a few board seats. You remember this? Yeah, that was huge. Yeah, right. Super cool story, except like, has that really changed Exxon? Have we seen any more wins from that? Not really. Like, is that really the strategy? We want to like own these shares and push them. Maybe okay to each their own. But for me personally, like, I don't think that's, you know, should be touted as the solution. And that really, to me, it it, it it is this notion that where they completely avoid the conversation of carbon risk, and which is really central to so much of sustainable investing, especially green investing, is understanding that there's risk from companies, you know, that, that are not, there's the physical risk and the transition risk from carbon risk. And it's just completely avoids any of those conversations, which to me is like very short-sighted and, you know, really unfortunately doesn't capture what I think are some of the most important points about sustainable investing. For sure. And so I want to, before we let you go, I want to get the one question that is relevant that came from a listener to put to you, which is given your points about how this Freakonomics show did not really do a great job in sort of making this clear and and that you're sort of continue to believe that ESG is a useful tool in terms of trying to ensure that you're at least paying attention or it's at least useful information to use as you make your decision is maybe more an accurate way to put that. The question is, if there was someone who has no time to figure out what these ratings mean or why, you know, are there relatively safe havens for, you know, ESG products or relatively safe ways that you can engage Oof. with products that might avoid some of the pitfalls that we've already discussed. So it's really tricky here because when we talk about safe, I'm not sure whether we mean low risk or whether we mean safe from a greenwashing sustainability standpoint, right? And so this is why my financial planner brain is like, oh, but there are things we can do that achieve both of those. So number one, what I would say is that now every single financial institution in Canada has at least an option. It might not be a great option and that, you know, this is where I spend a lot of time going through and which ones are better than, but if you have zero time to think about this or figure this out, you know, at least whoever your money person is, right, have the conversation, see if there is an option that they provide, because that'll always be the the easiest path. And I'll be honest that, you know, if you've got zero time, that's kind of, you know, really the only suggestion I can make from there, carve out part of your portfolio, not all of your money, but part of it for impact investments, that community bonds, green bonds, local small scale stuff. There are a number of really, really cool community bonds that are coming on the market right now. A lot of them have to do with affordable housing. So a group called Propolis out in Kamloops is building a sustainable co-op, affordable housing housing co-op. The Kensington Market Community Land Trust is something people here in Toronto should be keeping their eye on that I believe they're about to do a community bond offering. Now, you know, these are going to be the safest thing from a, an ethical standpoint. These are the right that really there is undeniable impact when it comes to these community bonds. However, financially, you know, there are some risks. These things are nonprofits. They're not liquid, right? Your money gets locked in. 
right? There are some unique financial risks when it comes to that. You know, really, if you're looking at the safest thing and absolutely like guarantee the only thing that's zero risk from a financial lens is going to be something like a GIC, a guaranteed investment certificate, right? Which is, and I would suggest looking at the credit union market, that there are a lot of really cool credit unions that in my mind are always going to be more ethical than the banks. And there is even one, there's Kindred Credit Union, which does have an affordable housing GIC, which, you know, to me, that's the kind of thing where it's it's going to be safe from both a financial standpoint, like literally zero risk because it's a GIC, so it's insured. And also, you know, very safe from an impact standpoint that that money is going to be going towards affordable housing, which is super cool. So, you know, again, there are a range of options. What I would say rather than like zero, no time to figure this out, can you give me like one hour, like hire me for one hour and I can probably help you figure this stuff out in in a way that's going to be a lot better. But that's kind of the approach that I look at it is is looking, you know, understanding what does safe mean from both an ethical perspective and from a financial perspective. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Tim. This has always been wonderful and informative and nuanced, which is so necessary. You know, like I feel like 90% of the time when the answer is, eh, then you're usually getting closer to the truth than when the answer is this thing specifically. So I greatly appreciate your time. It is our tradition to give our guests any last word on the show. So if there's anything else you'd like to say, please do. But before I pass it over to you, this has been Tim Nash, the founder and president of Good Investing and longtime friend of the show. Thanks so much. And yeah, any last thoughts? Yeah, I'm happy to be a shill for my personal business. So if people want to reach out, my website is goodinvesting.com. I give everyone a free consultation. So if you just want to chat about these things, you can sign up, chat with me for half an hour for free. Really just want people to give a little bit of thought to their investments, understanding that there are just lots of really good options on the market that I hope people want to take a look at.